Stand and turn to the book of Romans. Thank you, Jerry. The book of Romans, chapter 1. Glad to be here tonight. Say amen. If you're glad you're not sick, say amen. If you're praying for those that are, say amen. So I better quantify that just a little bit. It is good to be here as already has been said. And uh, I'm thankful for a desire. I'm thankful for that birthmark that was put in me. Boy, when I was young, Doug and I had a grandfather on uh, mom and dad's side. We both knew, and a lot of people don't know their grandparents. We had the privilege of knowing dad's dad and our mom's dad too. And I had the privilege of spending a lot of time with Ruby and Squirrely. And Papa was a deacon at one of the churches over, over home. And I'll be honest, when I was young, I didn't understand why he liked to go 30 minutes early before church. Now, I hate to say this, but he and others would meet on the front steps and sit and smoke their lucky strikes. And, uh, but, but I learned that he liked watching people come to the house of the Lord. You know, he, he was happy to be there. Now, he had a lot of problems where he had, where he had uh, what they call battle fatigue. It's PTSD now. He had it full-blown. But uh, I, I learned how special that was through, through my grandfather. And I, I enjoy being here watching people come. You all give me a heart attack sometimes. Here I'm looking, wondering if somebody's going to come. And I look up the clock and remember it's still two minutes till six or seven. And I'm thinking I am at Roxalana, so I calm right back down. I calm right back down. It's good to be here. Well, I, I miss Sunday night too. All evening I just thought it's just not right. It's, it's just not right. Just something... Something different. Well, we're going to embark on something that is greater than what I am. There, listen, all this book is bigger than I am, but I've never felt quite the intimidation as I have felt it in thinking about going to the book of Romans and trying to begin a study in it. And that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to start our study or walk through Romans. It could be very possible that we'll be here uh, either till I die or the Lord comes. But uh, we're going we're to trudge through it without any apologies. I'm going to, I'm not going to read verbatim the, the uh, introduction that I have, I have created. I've also worked on commentary for the first seven verses. I don't know how long I'll do that throughout this book. And it's not a great commentary. But I will put these things up on, on the, uh, on the uh, sermon audio page. They'll be available PDF file. If you, uh, if you want to download them, they'll, they'll be there along with the messages, and uh, maybe there will be something that would be a blessing to it. Before we step into this, let me just ask a couple questions and see, see, what, see what we know about the book of Romans. And I'll ask a couple of questions like, what do you know about the book of Romans? What do you want to learn about the book of Romans? What intrigues you about the book of Romans? What questions do you have about of Romans. Who wrote it? Where did he write it from? I mean, there's all kinds of things to, to spark us into study and looking when you look at this first epistle that uh, comes in order of all the epistles of the New Testament for the churches and the saints scattered abroad. Anyone comment, question? Uh, Paul had never been to Rome. Did he want to? Did he finally make it? He did. And I think it's funny, uh, the church didn't have to pay his way there. The Roman government paid it. Went in chains and shackles, maybe. He was, he was probably not shackled all the way. But, but I, God's got a great sense of humor to get us where we want, where he needs us to be, where he wants us to be in ways that 
would never imagine. Somebody else. Thank you, Judy, for priming the pot. So everybody knows everything they want to know about the book. I'm just kidding. I'm just trying to get you all into this. Well, I want to read a comment made by Martin Luther. Now, Martin Luther, I'm talking about the great uh, uh, theologian, the guy that led the, the Protestant revolt against the Roman Catholic uh, church. He was, he was a Catholic, an unconverted Catholic. And although he was doing all that the Catholics said do and don't do, uh, Brother David, he still knew something was missing. And actually, verse 17 of the book of Romans, chapter 1, where it says, The just shall live by faith, it lay hold of him and it changed him. It motivated him to protest, break away from the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, write a 95 thesis nailed to the door of Edinburgh Church and lead, uh, lead the church that had been consumed by the Roman Catholic Church back to the Lord. Now I'll say maybe more about that in a minute. But he's known to be a great theologian, a great man of God. And listen to what he said about the book of Romans. He was the great reformer, probably be the best way for me to refer to it. He said, Romans is the true masterpiece of the New Testament and the purest gospel, which is well worthy and deserving that a Christian man should not only learn it by heart, word for word, but also that he should daily deal with it as the daily bread of men's souls. It can never be too much or too well read or studied, and the more it is handled, the more precious it becomes and the better it takes. How many of you all have the book of Romans as your favorite book in the Bible? A few of us. It is absolutely a phenomenal treatise of faith. I mean to tell you, it is... I'm sorry? Romans chapter 8. It, 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 well, it would have to be probably the uh, highest chapter in the book of Romans, I, I would say. You know, So it begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation. It's, just a, it's a phenomenal chapter, Brother Steve. It sure is. Romans, where does Romans fall as far as in order of the writings of the apostle? And another question with that, how many epistles do you believe the apostle Paul wrote? Most people believe or credit him of writing 13. I personally believe that he wrote Hebrews, so that would make a total of 14. Now, in the book of Hebrews, there is no salutation as we have here in Romans and every other epistle that Paul wrote. and there's re- I, I believe the reason he didn't put a salutation in that book is because he didn't need one. I believe everybody knew him. And, and, and who could write better about, uh, about the history of the nation of Israel, about the priesthood, about the temple, the tabernacle, than a man who was a Pharisee himself that even studied at the feet of God. Gamaliel or Gamaliel, whichever one you choose, both of them are acceptable. Uh, so Paul, Paul, I believe, and, and a lot of other reasons, just, just to give you an idea, okay, give you a biblical idea. How many men did God choose to write uh, the epistles of the New Testament or the books from the book of Acts beyond, from, from, from Romans on? How many men uh, did God choose to write those books? Y'all want to name them? Peter, James, John, Jude, and Paul. Well, I was just wondering if everybody's listening. 
That's pretty amazing, the number of grace. Does anybody remember how many, how many uh, pillars there was or posts that held up the door that entered into the tabernacle in the Old Testament? See, I don't think those kind of things are by chance. I mean, that's just a little bit to wet some of you Bible readers and studiers tongue on that just to get you just to get you thinking now Steve said that uh, well I'll get to that in a minute he wrote fifth or 14 letters I believe and Romans is his fifth in order and I'd never thought about this so I began to study on this book I don't know whether you did I knew you studied it with your ladies group is that right did you look at it and study as to why God put it first in in order as to the rest of the epistles and, and letters to either the churches by name or, or individuals by name or the, the saints scattered abroad? Did you look at that and get any idea? Because it explains, it explains the gospel. Constitution of Christianity, I believe I've heard it uh, spoken of that, and I'll say more about that that later, but somebody said in, in light of the fact that we have four gospel accounts of the gospel, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of those gave uh, an account of, of the gospel. The gospels are not a biography of Jesus Christ, they're an account of the life of Jesus Christ, according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, Acts could be called a continuation of the gospel, but Romans could be called the fifth gospel, an explanation of it. So it is an introduction to everything in many ways that, that goes on there. Now, if, if you were to guess about a theme, a theme, I mean, we already know what probably the key chapter is of the book of Romans. Like Steve said, it is Romans chapter 8. I like to look for key words. I like to look for key verses. What do you think maybe the theme of Romans might be? What? Saved? Faith. Faith, faith. Well, it, it, it takes faith in it. There's faith, faith to understand it, to receive the blessings of it, but that's probably not the theme of it. The gospel of God. Now, that is generally the most commonly accepted theme of the gospel, but does anybody have another idea? What? The righteousness of Christ. And that's what I have chosen. The gospel tells about the righteousness of Christ. Righteousness of Christ actually tells about and produces the gospel of Christ. Maybe, I'm not sure which way to say it. They're both so intertwined, I don't know that you could. But most authors that I read after, because you find us introduced to the the gospel in verse 1 of chapter 1, it's mentioned again later, maybe in, in... in a couple other verses here in the first chapter, I know it is in chapter or verse 16 of chapter 1. It's used, I forget how many times, 33 times, maybe 20 or 33 times the word gospel is mentioned. But when you begin to thrash it down and look at it, I agree with Miss Phyllis, I believe the theme of the book of Romans has to be the righteousness of God. And that I have borrowed from a fellow by the name of, of Warren Wisby, which is a a great theologian. He was the pastor of, of Moody Church for a long period of time. And I just borrowed his basic structure. I didn't get it verbatim, just the highlights. And even just, I admitted all of those, but it is Dr. Warren Wearsby's um, 
outline, and he puts it like this. Righteousness demanded, and he picks it up in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter uh, 3, verse 20. Because in those three chapters, just to give you a quick overview of that, God brings the world, all of mankind, into his court. God brings the heathen, the hypocrite, and the Hebrew before him into the court of heaven. And you know what he finds us? According to uh, verse 23 of chapter 3, that we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Finds us all guilty before him and, and declares that we're unrighteous, we're sinners in need of righteousness. So from chapter uh, 3, verses 21, down to chapter 5, verses 21, he calls it righteousness declared. In chapter 4, if I'm remembering correctly, he gives us the example of Abraham and David and tells us that righteousness cannot be gotten by our works. Now here's the, here's the kind of the conundrum or the, or the funny paradox we do right things. Righteousness simply means doing right things. We can do right things in relationship to one another. Whether it be our wife, our husband, our children, our family, our parents, our workmates, our classmates, our brothers and sisters in Christ, strangers that we meet, we can do right things uh, in relationship to them. We can even do right things in our relationship towards God. But God, through Isaiah a long time ago, said that our righteousness is. There's an E-S on the end of that word that I had missed for a long time. Even, our right, even the right things that we do will not give us access to heaven. God cannot accept our righteousness is because in His sight, when ours is put up against His, they look like filthy rags. And I won't, I won't use the verbiage, really, that the filthy rags refer to from the pulpit. I'd tell you privately, but it's, it's pretty amazing. They're disgusting, actually, what, what, what Isaiah is literally speaking of. But anyway, in chapters 6 through 8, we have the righteousness, we have righteousness defended. In chapter 4, we found out it couldn't be done by works. Chapter 5 tells us that it is a free gift. In chapter 6, Paul stepped out of the darkness into light, and, and, and he, he, he was rejoicing in chapter 6. He was like a, a new man who had come to know Jesus, and he thought, man, this Christianity is easy. I got it made. He steps out of chapter 6 into chapter 7 and realizes the old man that he thought was dead is still alive. And he cried out, O wretched man that I am. Then he steps out of chapter 7 into chapter 8 and he learns the key to successful Christian living and that's walking in the Spirit. Beautiful. So in chapters 9, 10, and 11, it's righteousness declined. In those three chapters, there's, there, there's some people that surprise me in their commentaries and in their, in their thought process about why certain things are in the Word of God. There are some people who think that it was a mistake to put these three chapters in here and to give us in chapter 9 the history of the nation of Israel, chapter 10 the present condition of the nation of Israel, chapter 11 the future state of the nation of Israel when, when God once again grafts them back into the olive tree out of which they were cut off. Well, can I tell you all the reason for those three chapters? 
God wants us to know without a doubt that His promise to us are real. And He uses the nation of Israel to prove to us that He's able to do what He promised He would do regardless of what man has done. And He gives them to us as an assurance of our faith. Listen, if God's not able to keep Israel, you can forget it. He's not able to keep us. And Paul uses strong language. He, he uses, he said, as God cast off Israel, he said, God forbid. So I like that. And then chapters 12 through 15, it's the righteousness demanded. In other words, let me give you my simple um, division of the, of the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 8, we have doctrine. Chapters 9 through 11, we, we have uh, um, a dispensation. In chapter six, 12 through 16, we have duty. That's pretty simple, is it not? But I like, I like Brother uh, Wearsby's outline very, very much, and I'm glad uh, that I can borrow it. Does anybody know how the Church of Rome was established? Now, most every letter that Paul wrote, he addressed it to, to, to a church or some person. I mean, he was very, but he didn't really to these here at Rome because they're really, I mean, I don't know how to say that. There was a church there, but it wasn't established by Paul. Let me put it, put it that way, personally. But you think it could have been established by Paul, long distance? There's some that do. I've wondered if it didn't get started on the day of Pentecost when some of those Jews were in Jerusalem, according to, you know, the law, and they had, come there and on that day they heard the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and carried back home. Maybe it began with a husband and a wife who were introduced to when they're first introduced as Aquila and Paula. But as they continued to work and grow in God's grace and in knowledge and be more involved in the work of the Apostle Paul himself, even be uh, really close friends to the Apostle Paul, I think it's phenomenal. You'll find that Priscilla is mentioned before Aquila. I think she grew spiritually more than her husband. I think that's amazing. The Word of God is an amazing book. So we don't know exactly who. Paul, like Judy said, wanted to go to Rome. I believe he wanted to go to Rome from the very instant that Ananias told him uh, that God had made him a chosen vessel and that he would stand before kings and priests. I believe he wanted to go to Rome uh, for the 20 years that, that uh, preceded his, his actual passage to Rome. I believe he wanted to go there in, in, in great way. Paul was, was a well-formed um, man. What do we know about the history of Paul? Well-educated, was he not? You want to elaborate a little bit more on how and where? You... Yeah, Gamaliel. Where else was he educated? Where, where, where was Paul's home? His home, he was from the capital of Tarsus. He was from the capital city called Cilicia. And there was a great university from what I've, I've read and studied and scholars have taught me. And Paul was schooled there. Paul came from probably an upper crust cast of society at that time. Does anybody know anything specific about the city from which Paul came from, from Cilicia? It was a Roman colony. And Paul's father was a Pharisee. 
but he was also a Roman citizen. So therefore, when Paul the apostle was birthed, he became a freeborn. That's the word he uses in the book of Acts when he and another fellow that was a was a soldier in the army of Rome. He said, look, I, I, I bought my citizenship. This isn't the verbiage. But he said, I bought my citizenship at a great price. And Paul said, I'm freeborn. Paul said, I was born with Roman citizenship because my daddy was Roman. And look, God, see here again, God is amazing. God was preparing Paul as he went to school in his, home, in, in, in his capital city when, when he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, learning, um, uh, learning the ways, I guess could be the best phrase to use, of the Pharisee. Um, and, and he was just absolutely prepared on a lot of levels being a Roman uh, because he was birthed in a city that was a Roman colony, which was enmeshed with Roman culture, with Greek culture, with their philosophy, with their ideologies, knowing the power, the politics of the, of the, of the empire of Rome. He was ready to carry the gospel to the Gentile world. All righty. When he was first converted, after he was converted on the road to Damascus, he, uh, he went on into Damascus, but you'll read that, that he spent three years in Arabia. See, I, 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 I preached a message one time at Casey, graduating desert you. That was the tip. Man, it was a good message. How many years did Jesus, at the most, did Jesus spend training the apostles? How many years do you think Jesus spent training Paul? I, I, there's so much, and, I, and I'm building a case for I believe Paul was the 12th apostle, not the 13th. But I'll come back to that when we get to, ver, to verse 1. Whether you agree or not, that's okay. If you want to be wrong, that's all right. But anyway, uh, but, but I, I like studying on things like this. But yeah, he spent three years in the Arabian desert. And I don't know, I, I imagine him at times... I just, you know, in my mind, I imagine him just throwing the scroll down and saying, it can't be that way, God. Here was a Pharisee that was saturated in the law of Moses. When you all come across the word somebody was a doctor in, in the Gospels, it means that they were a Ph.D. in the law of Moses. doesn't mean that they were a chiropractic or a cardiologist or an endocologist and all of that. It means that they were... A well, you know, educated doctor in, in the law. And uh, Paul, I, I mean, God used Paul's knowledge of the Old Testament to forge out the theology of the New Testament. Paul used him, and, and we'll get part of that here in chapter 1, because, look, can, can I ask you something? We know the gospel is the good news, but is the message of the gospel new to the New Testament? Throughout the Old Testament everywhere. And that's what it was saying. And, and, and I believe in, in Arabia, um, God was, Jesus was saying, Hey, Paul, now look, son, look. You see these nail-pierced hands and these feet? Let, let me show you a picture of this in the Old Testament. We go over there in the book of Numbers, chapter 21, and look at that serpent raised up. And Paul went back and said, Oh my, I've never seen that before. 
He knew about it. He knew about the fiery serpents. He knew about the judgment of God. He could have told us everybody that died. He could have told us what Moses did to instruct Aaron to run in the midst of that that place, to uh, make a brazen serpent, put it on a pole, and everybody looked till he could have told all of it. But he, he could have told us all of it, all of the points and the particulars. But he could not have told the spiritual application of what God was trying to teach. One of the greatest chapters in the entire Word of God is Isaiah 53. And you all know the Jewish word hides it from their own people. I mean, if you want to witness to a Jew, ask them and challenge them to read the book of Isaiah 53, and they'll come away startled. They'll say, well, it's in your Bible. say, no, it's your Bible. Because they don't want people to know about God's suffering servant. It's, it's, it's pretty amazing. But Paul was well equipped um, to, uh, to, to write this treatise, this letter, this epistle uh, to, to Rome. Uh, some people give him credit to, to, for the establishment, not the establishment, the founding of it long distance. I have no idea for sure who, but uh, they, say that, uh, they say that when he wrote this letter, and here's the fact that I cannot... Uh, get down to satisfy me. It may be very true. They believe that Paul wrote this epistle uh, to the Romans from Corinth on his third missionary journey. Now, I, I have no idea whether that's true or not, but that's, that's what the theologians, men that are way, way, way smarter than me. Let me read a, uh, let me read a paragraph, if I may, that, that, that I wrote about Romans, and then we'll move into verse 1. Romans is both a captivating and an invigorating book. It is a book that demands our greatest attention and invites our greatest devotion. It's truly a jewel among jewels. And although it is a part of a whole, in many ways it may be said without doing any harm to the whole canon of Scripture that it stands alone among all the rest of which it is a part. It's just, it's just a book above books, that's among books, we, we could say. So, any questions, comments, additions to that? Well, let's, let's, start, with our, let's start with our study. He did know, and, and you know it's amazing. Thank you for that, Judy. It is amazing. God always lets His men know what they need to know. Now, let me tell you what I've learned over the years. There are three ways to get messages, and, and they're all three biblical. The one that both the preacher and the congregation likes the most and is most easily accepted is that when a man is in his study reading and things begin to just leap off the page. I mean, the inspiration of God just stirs him. The Spirit of God quickens him. And like the Word of God, one of the, one of the psalmists said, uh, quicken thou me according to thy word. I mean, the Spirit of God just all over the place. And just because God's speaking to you from the Word, we get these messages that, that we preach and, you know, seems to be easiest to, to give and also to receive. But there's another way. One of those ways is by conversation. Conversation. When Paul wrote the, the epistles that bear his name, there were times when a delegation from a church, whether it be from Galatia, Colossians, or Thessalonica, found Paul. Many times it was in a prison. At least four times these epistles are written from a, a dungeon, and Paul said, "I heard." I mean, I mean, you know, 
when the inspiration comes, like Paul was on Mars Hill, I saw this altar to an unknown God. Now let me preach a message that will help you. When, when God wants us to know something, even if it is by communication or conversation, He'll spark something in a pastor's heart and give him a message to address it. And then there is observation. That, that's what Paul saw. I had that one wrong. Paul saw that uh, on Mars Hill. He said, look, I looked and saw. And, and all three ways of getting messages from God are legitimate. The needs are made known in different ways. But, but the answer is beneficial to all of us anyway. Um, I, I tell you, this. Um, we, I'm going to read just simply the first seven verses. The title of it is The Salutation of the Apostle Paul. Um, and that's a salutation. What, what is a salutation? It's a greeting. It's a greeting. Paul, and right there is enough to stop everybody. Can you all imagine? Can you all imagine the excitement in a congregation when somebody says, Hey, I got a letter from Paul? Could you imagine what that stirred in their hearts, how it quickened their spirit? Who do you all think may have carried the letter from Paul to the church of Rome? Any 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 guesses? I'd never thought about this one until I began to study this. Anybody ever heard of a woman by the name of Phoebe? It is thought, commonly accepted across the circles of different writers, that it's a high probability that Phoebe carried this letter back to Rome. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? It's a good question. I can't tell you that. Lord hadn't showed me that one yet, Judy, but that's good. Now watch the way Paul introduces himself to the church of Rome, and it is an entailed um, uh, introduction to himself. He spends more time in introduction in Romans than any other book, and one of the reasons being they did not know Paul. He had never been there. They had not seen him in the flesh face to face, and Paul wanted them. Now, if you had, if you had been writing a letter and uh, you were trying to impress somebody, and Paul wasn't trying to, by the way, and you had letters to go that you could go because you studied and you were deferred a degree, a degree had been deferred on you, uh, would it be wrong to put those letters at the end of your name? Matter of fact, it would be wrong if you've got them under certain terms of letter writing if you didn't include them, to be honest. Well, look how Paul started his, his letter. What does he start with, how he identifies himself first? Wow. I can't wait to step in this next week and do a little bit of studying on it. It comes from the Greek word doulos, D-U-O-L-O-S, doulos. And Paul never lost sight that he was a servant of the Most High God. Hey, can I encourage all of us here, all of us looking on, all of us listening on, in we ought never to forget that. Now he doesn't stop. He goes on. He wasn't ashamed to be called an apostle. But listen to what he said. He was separated under the gospel of God. We ought to remember that we've been separated from and to something. He said, which he had promised, meaning the gospel, before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Four great things God tells us there, or Paul does. God does through Paul, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Four great things, which was made of the seed of David. Now let me emphasize that. 
He wasn't born. He was made of the seed of David. And look at what, I know he was born of Mary. Don't take that wrong, but I want to emphasize that for a reason. We'll get into it eventually. He said, and he was, he is, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from or out from among the dead. By whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name among whom ye also are... Now watch this. He's talking to the Romans, but he's talking to us tonight. Among whom you're also, number one, the called of Jesus Christ to all that be in Rome. Number two, beloved of God. Number three, called to be saints. Hey, everybody, even when we're not saintly, you don't, you don't reach sainthood after you die and some council votes on you. You reach sainthood when you're saved. When you're separated under the gospel. He said, and grace to you and peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what I want to say right there? Wow. That is, that is so rich. It is, it is so, it is so real. So it is an exciting book. I'm excited about it. Again, I need your prayers. I covet your prayers in it without a doubt. But uh I, I, I mean, I'm just excited about these, this introduction. I, do you all know that, that the virgin birth is taught in verse 3 of this, of this passage? I've never heard a message on it. Never heard a message on the virgin birth from it. But man, I've seen things in that in, in these last few days trying to prepare for this in study that I'd never seen before. It's just remarkable. So I do need your prayers and Hey, I hope, I hope it's a blessing. Again, I'll put this introduction up tonight with, uh, with, the, uh, with the lesson. And um, when I first, next week after next week, I'll put, uh, I'll put uh, when I create a spot on Sermon Audio, I'll put, I'll put the uh, commentary that I've got done so far up there too. Comments? Anybody? All right, let's stand and sing whatever Jerry has. <laughs> 